0: Y'all sound so great. Amen. By the way, how many of you felt like you were on an emotional roller coaster? With poor Ginger? Marissa, that was some excellent storytelling. (laughs) Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together as we continue in our series on I Doubt It. Lord, help us to overcome our doubt to be faithful to you in Jesus name, Amen. Amen. There were three young men who were about to become fathers for the first time. They were all waiting in the waiting room. And nervously waiting, moving their feet, looking around, you know, this was their first time they had no idea what was about to happen, other than they knew they would become fathers. But what did that really mean? They had an idea of what it meant to be a father. And they were excited. They were scared. But they were really looking forward to it. Finally, one of the nurses comes out. She informs the first father, you're having twins. And the father, he said, That's amazing. Thank you so much. I play for the Minnesota twins. And the rest of the dads that came up, they high fived them, slapped them on the back and they said, Yes, congratulations. About 20 minutes later, the nurse comes back out and she says to the second father, congratulations, it's a boy, a girl, and another boy. Triplets. Oh, okay. Well, how fortuitous. I work for 3M. The third father starts to become a little queasy. He puts his hand on the wall and all of a sudden he just falls and he faints. After a while, he comes to and he wakes up and they say, hey man, are are you okay? Yeah, but I work for (laughs) 7-Up. I'm glad I made you laugh. (laughs) You make me feel a little bit better up here. (laughs) Seven kids, have mercy. (laughs) All at once. Now the new father realized that we're he knew he would have responsibilities and expectations. But he didn't realize that they would skyrocket so high is what he thought. Perceptions, expectations, you know, expectations, they can help us thrive. And at times they can also crush us. Amen. Expectations can help us guide us into the future. But if our expectations are great, if they are huge and big, sometimes they can become a burden. Los Angeles Lakers, Chicago Bulls, New York Yankees, Tiger Woods, Michael Phelps, Lewis Hamilton. What do all these teams and athletes have in common? They won, and they didn't just win. They basically had dynasties, right? How many titles do the Lakers have? Oh, mercy. 17, thank you. All right, 17. How many? What? Celtics do too. Yeah, but we don't talk about the Celtics here. <laughs> Lord, forgive me. <laughs> Those of you who grew up in the 80s and watched Lakers with magic and cream, you know how far that goes. It's yeah. deep, <laughs> right? Chicago Bulls, they won six, three, uh, twice, three Um Tiger Woods, I lost count how many times he won. But you you know the story of I him. Mean, it's just incredible. Golf wise, the greatest. Michael Phelps. How many gold medals did he win in one Olympics? Oh. Finally, Lewis Hamilton. Anybody know not know who Lewis Hamilton is? Well, I expected more hands. Okay, Lewis Hamilton is the great. Well, one of the greatest Formula One drivers ever. right. Um, so every time these teams or these athletes want though, okay, you want it. What's the next expectation? Can you do it again? And over time, you made the first title or two, okay, cool. The first one is probably easiest. But the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, gets to become more pressured, more expectations. Have you ever felt something Well, have you ever felt faced something so big that it was scary? Did you want to avoid it? Did you want to rush with to it with gusto? Maybe it depends, right? Well, let's go to let's go to Luke 22, Luke 22. We find ourselves uh, after Jesus and the disciples last week, we we read uh, the Last Supper. And after the Last Supper, Jesus wants to go on a walk. He wants to go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, Luke doesn't mention the Garden of Gethsemane, but Matthew and Mark do. John also alludes to it uh, that he and the disciples went to a garden that Jesus frequented. Okay. All right, let's read this. Luke 22, verse 39. All right, we all there? All right. So Jesus went out as what? Usual. It's a place that he frequented. To the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but whose? yours be done an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him and being in what anguish Anguish. he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground side note it's interesting now luke was what was his profession he was a doctor how interesting he added that little other tidbit in there that the other disciples sorry the other gospel writers didn't And in verse 45, he says, when he rose from prayer, he went back to the disciples, he found them what sleeping, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them, get up and pray so that you will not fall in to temptation. So again, all the gospel accounts allude to this, this, uh, this scene, some more so than others. Matthew and Mark, most detailed. Luke is not as detailed. John, probably the least detailed. Uh, in fact, Luke doesn't even specify Gethsemane. And even in Luke's account, he only reports one time where the disciples were falling asleep. Okay. But yet, it's an interesting story. When you think about the garden, did anybody else happen to hang out in the garden, maybe live in a garden? But who who lived in a garden? Adam. Adam, right? How many of you did your Sabbath School quarterly lesson this week? We talked about the fall. So some of the things interesting how we're gonna, we're gonna remind ourselves. In many ways, when you look at this story, there's actually I, I, I didn't I, you know, I've been studying the Bible for years, and I didn't realize some of the parallels that kind of go back to Genesis. So Adam lived in a garden. Jesus was in the garden at one point. Adam was created in a perfect garden. Jesus was born into a broken world. Adam faced temptation and lost, but Jesus faced temptation in the garden and what? Won, right? If you look to 1 Corinthians 15 and also in Romans, it talks about how Jesus is the second Adam. But we find here in Luke 22, that Jesus, he felt this agonizing burden on his shoulders. In fact, it was so agonizing that scripture says, uh, Luke says that Jesus knelt to pray in Matthew, he actually says he fell on his face. And for Jesus to be kneeling and, and in Matthew's account falling on his face, what is he doing? He's praying, of course. But what is his tone? He's he's humbled. He's being reverent to God. He's seeking an honest question. He's asking God. And yet also, side note, just to kind of give a little bit more context. I hadn't thought of this before. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what's in this Garden of Gethsemane? It's also known as the Mount of Olives. So there's olive trees, right? Does anybody know what Gethsemane means? It means olive press. And what does an olive press do? It extracts all of the oil from the olives, creating olive oil. I'm going to go a little deeper here too. I'm going to blow your mind. What is olive oil used in the Bible for? anointing. How many of you, it was kind of like today, years old, I learned. I didn't realize that until this week, isn't that amazing? Now I've been studying my Bible for a long time. There's so many little lessons along the way that we can take but I, I find here that Jesus is experiencing this pressure. He's in Gethsemane, which is known as an olive press Jesus in his heart and on his shoulders. He's experiencing this this agony. What is Jesus so distressed over? When you think about it, the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Amen. The salvation of all of us was on his shoulders. Earlier today, uh, in, in Sabbath school, if you study your Sabbath school this week, there was a verse that um, that that stood out. Um, but bef- uh, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. When did the plan of salvation begin? Genesis 315. And throughout Genesis all the way to the Gospels, we see that God's plan of salvation was in order. Amen. But yet we find now Jesus where the weight of everything is on his shoulders, and he's, he's talking about, um, he mentions in verse 42, he says, Father, if you are willing, take this, what from me? This cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. And what is this cup that Jesus is talking about? Well, Jesus actually alludes to it in Matthew 20. In fact, even in Matthew 20, verse 19, he mentions for a third time that he was predicting, prophesying that he would die. And a couple of verses later, well, James and John and their mother, their mother asks Jesus what? Can my sons sit on your left and right? And Jesus basically responds with, you don't know what you're asking, are you you sure? And then he responds with, you don't know what you're asking for, but then he points out that they will suffer experience hardship, suffer persecution and death. But the place to which they're to sit was not his to give. Now, even Ellen White writes, the sins of men heavily weighed upon Christ. And the sense of God's wrath against sin was crushing out his life. This was his agony. In his agony, he clings to the cold ground as if to prevent himself from being drawn farther from God. From his pale lips comes the bitter cry. Oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet even now, he adds, nevertheless. I love that word, nevertheless, or yet. Not as I will, but as thou wilt. And in Jesus' mind, he had this image. He already knew what he would have to face, what he would have to endure. Any of you want to be in Jesus' shoes at that moment? No. And Jesus also agonized over the fact of being separated from the Father, sin, and being cut off from the Father. And yet, Jesus was still faithful. Your will be done. In many ways, I still think Jesus was extremely faithful. Jesus asked questions. God, can this cup be passed? But if not, that's okay, I will still be faithful to you. Some look at this as if Jesus is doubting God, but I, I don't think Jesus was doubting God, I think he just was accepting the reality of what his life would be the expectation He knew what he had to accomplish. And something so great and so profound was going to take everything from him. He knew what it would cost. And it was here that he probably it was the biggest time that the devil tried to get him to change his mind. Now Jesus had been tempted by the devil before in Matthew four, Jesus also experienced hunger, he experienced thirst experienced dealing with difficult people. And yet through it all, he was faithful. We also find too on the cross. What does he say? Eli Eli lama Sabakhtani, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? A faithful life means we should ask questions simply asking why I think, and to, to ask God questions, somebody once said to ask to question God cannot be a weakness of faith because it's in our questions as we seek answers is where our faith can grow. Somebody else wrote this for his part, Jesus goes to his death in the same manner that has characterized his life, namely in the obedience to the will of his father His was the death of a prophet, but even more so the death of a regal prophet, the royal Messiah, the righteous one who suffers unjustly, the servant of Yahweh. So, one of the key words that we can take into consideration is, yet, or as we read, nevertheless. Jesus seeks for the cup to be passed on, but then he says, yet, I will be faithful to you. And he is faithful. He was faithful. Now shortly thereafter, he leaves the garden and who is he met by? Judas and the authorities. And he's taken into custody. Now next week, you can find out what happens next. So you have to come back. (laughs) First John 316 puts it this way. We know what real love is, because Jesus gave up his life for us. If Jesus doubted, he wouldn't have given his life up for us. Amen. So we also sought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. I don't know who wrote this. It's I, I would say it's a poem, but I just I want to briefly read it for you all. Jesus saw what was coming by way of the cross. Jesus saw the beating of the Roman whip at the mantle attached to the ends that would rip the skin off the victims back. Beaten beyond recognition and could barely see to carry an old wooden cross to die on. That night before he saw that same blood that would run down his arm and drip off his elbow as nails were driven into his eyes. That night before he saw that same blood dripping off his toes and down to the foot of the, nail, the cross as nails were driven into his feet. That night before he saw that same blood as a crown of thorns was placed on his head. And that same blood ran down his forehead onto his eyebrows and down onto his eyelashes and into his eyes and blurred his vision. But wait, that blood might have blurred his human vision. But Jesus was God in the flesh. The night before he saw that blood as salvation to who so ever would come to him. That night before he saw you and me as we came to that cross and that bloodshed washed away our sins and gives us eternal life. The night before he could see the death of the defeat of death and the fall of Satan and the night before he could see the plans of a heavenly home for you and for me. Now, What are some of the things? What are some of the lessons that we can learn from this is that just like Jesus, we are not exempt from temptation. Anybody not been tempted before? (laughs) Nobody raised their hands, right? We've all been tempted at one point. We all face temptation. And yet what was Jesus response to his agony, his pain and his challenge? Well, earlier we found in Matthew four that he quoted scripture, or he quoted the devil with to uh, he quoted scripture to the devil. But Jesus also in the Garden of Gethsemane humbled himself and he prayed. And so, when we face temptation as well, may we, as we're experiencing this, just say, "No, Lord, help me." in my in this dealing with this temptation, help me in my struggle, or maybe even in my unbelief, help me Lord, to have courage and the strength to say no. One of the beautiful things about this passage, though, is that in verse 43, an angel was sent to minister to strengthen encourage Jesus. And as as a body of believers, I think it's important that we also take time to encourage one another when we're dealing with something difficult, when we're feeling tempted, when we're dealing with a difficult situation, it's important that we look out for one another, to be an encourager. But finally, as well, when we're dealing, and it's beyond us, don't be afraid to seek help. When we're dealing with hardship, is it is it easy to admit that we need help? Or do we oftentimes try to try to keep it to ourselves? And we suffer in silence. Ray Earle writes, you'd be surprised at what lengths people will go not to face what's real and painful inside of them. So don't be afraid to seek help somebody that you trust, whether it's a friend, or if need be a professional. But just like Jesus, pray for yourself, pray for one another. I love the thing. One of the things I love about this church is just our our steadfastness to pray for one another. Amen. We have a prayer team that prays for our church every day. And uh, I'm so grateful that many of you remind me, pastor, we're praying for you, because I need it. (laughs) But I believe that a faithful church is a prayerful church we need to be people of prayer. And I also think that Peter, James and John, the disciples who were with Jesus, Peter, James and John, you had the disciples, you had the 12. But then there were Peter, James and John, who, for some reason, Jesus poured extra attention into them. And in Matthew and Mark, in the case that he was they were there with him. And Jesus went to the Garden of Gethsemane, but he pulled Peter, James and John have backup, right? And what did he ask them to do? He asked them to pray. Now, in Luke's account, he only finds them sleeping once, but in the other accounts, he finds them sleeping three times. Right? Imagine now the burden that is on Jesus heart and on his shoulders. And his backup is sleeping. <laughs> I think Peter, James, and John learned a very valuable lesson that night, too, because we find in uh, Acts 12, 1 through 5. Acts 12, 1 through 5. I'll, I'll just read it here real quick. It was about that time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this was met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. And after arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to to be guarded by the four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. Now, this is just one example, because there are many examples in the book of Acts, especially where the disciples are praying for him later. Peter is is let out or he escapes. and He shows up and what were the people doing? They were praying for him. Right. But may we learn from Peter, James and John to support for support one another with prayer. May we be thankful for the courage of Jesus and the gift of life that he brings to us. Amen. So reflection, where in your life do you struggle with temptation? Where are you burdened? And when you feel tempted, pray. And if you know somebody that you're comfortable with, share your struggle with someone that you trust, and pray with one another that you, by the Lord's grace may overcome your temptation. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to meet together as friends, as family. Be with us every day, Lord, as we go forth. There are many things that can be so appealing and yet, Lord, they're not good for us. Thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness, for your steadfastness, for the fact that you took on the cross and defeated death, defeated sin, and love us so much, Lord, you want to spend eternity with us. Help us to be faithful followers and ambassadors for you every day. Be with us until we meet again next week, where we celebrate not just your death, but more importantly as well, Lord, the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. Grace and peace, everybody.